Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Paul Granger, Chief Executive Officer of the Brisbane Club. It's wonderful to have you along again today for another episode of the Arate Podcast. I've known Paul Granger for a number of years now uh, in his role prior to and also his current role as the CEO of the Brisbane Club. And I've always been impressed by people who can dedicate their lives to working in the hospitality space, particularly when they're working whilst everyone around them seems to be having fun. I find that a, a challenging occupation to get my head around. But Paul and I talk about that in this conversation and uh, he's got some very interesting views about a career in hospitality and certainly he's somebody who's dedicated his entire profession to working within that space. But before I get on and formally introduce Paul to you, for those who are new to the Arate podcast, let me briefly introduce myself. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy solutions for senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking to get their next role. So if we can assist you either in recruiting into your own organization or supporting you in your job search, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Now, let me get on and introduce to you Paul Granger. Paul Granger grew up in the United Kingdom, and as a young man, he had a passion for sport, which took him initially into the leisure and sporting industries when he completed his university qualifications. He holds a Bachelor of Science with Honours in Sports Science and Leisure Management. He has worked within the club environment in leadership roles in the UK, Hong Kong, and now in Australia. And even for a short period, he ran his own consulting business. Currently, Paul is the CEO of the Brisbane Club in Brisbane, obviously, and he's married and his family also live with him here. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Paul Granger. So, Paul, welcome to the Arotate podcast. It's great to have you along today. Perhaps uh, for the benefit of people who are listening in, could you just start by telling us a little bit about what you're currently doing professionally? Sure, yeah, thank you, Richard. Um, yes, essentially at the moment I'm the Chief Executive Officer at the uh, Brisbane Club. Um, so, again, essentially uh, uh, involved in the operation and uh, strategic direction of the club. Okay. And for people who don't know the Brisbane Club, perhaps they're not from Brisbane, uh, what's the Brisbane Club all about? Uh, well, the Brisbane Club is very much one of Australia's leading uh, business clubs, okay. located here in Brisbane, uh, with a terrific demographic of, of members, very much a who's who within the Brisbane business community. Sure. Um, and um, facilities that we have, uh, essentially food and beverage related, but we also do uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, functions, okay. uh, both for small and larger groups, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously a lot of events for, for members and unique events that they couldn't probably... Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, roughly how many members and what's the sort of demographic of the type of people who uh, join the club? Yeah, uh, well we've got uh, just over 2,200 members in, in total. 
fairly typically they are from the professions, um, etc. within Brisbane. Uh, we do have overseas members, we do have interstate members, but certainly from a, traditionally a corporate background. Mm -hmm. um, obviously all ages, our, our youngest uh, uh, members are all in the, what we call the under 36 um, uh, young executive category, all through to people who've obviously gone through stellar careers and uh, sure. been members a long time. Yeah, and men and women? Uh, definitely men and women. It's certainly one of the big points of difference mm -hmm. for the club. Uh, equality is very much the watchword, mm -hmm. and uh, that is certainly the fastest growing demographic by some way. Okay. Uh, the, the, the female executive, and something that the club is working really hard on. Mm -hmm. Uh, currently to to grow even more mm -hmm. and what would be uh, how many employees would uh, work underneath you? Uh, we've got approximately 45 full-time people uh-huh um, all through our obviously different departments etc uh, and we obviously utilize uh, a large number of casual employees particularly in that function arena depending on, on, on the size of function so uh, at any one time, we would probably have between 60 and 70 people okay. uh, on our various floors. Yeah. Okay, great. And uh, you've really worked in that space for the majority of your career all over the mm. world, which I'm keen to uh, uh, talk and learn more about. But let's uh, perhaps go back to uh, where it all began and uh, just explain uh, you know, where you were born and let's uh, sure. have a chat about the early life of Paul and how that's made you into okay. the person that you are now. Well, first of all, that was some time ago, Richard. Um, but uh, not that yeah, long ago. We're a similar vintage. I um, I was born, as you can probably tell by the accent, um, back in uh, England. Yeah. Uh, very much in the Midlands, mm -hmm. uh, so roughly halfway between Nottingham and Derby. Okay. In a very small village. Um, can't remember the population, but I think there were something like um, you know, seventy or a hundred homes and right. something like four or five pubs. Wow. Um, that was the kind of village sure. that it was. Uh, so very much a grassroots upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of schooling... Well, were, um, were your parents on the land or uh, in farming or what? No, not quite. Uh, no, they were, my uh, my father was uh, and, and still is actually what's called a, an m and &E engineer, so mechanical and electrical. Okay, yeah. Um, so he, he spent uh, a lot of time working overseas, in fact we lived overseas as children until right. we were about 9 or 10, that's okay. my brother and I, Yeah. in a lot of different places but uh, some backwater places as well, so right. probably the most um, memorable, maybe not for the right reasons, was Nigeria, Okay. Uh, which was uh, three years, right. and my dad was a project manager on a, uh, a dam project okay. of all things there. and. Uh, yeah, very uh, very different upbringing, but, but one that um, certainly uh, probably formed a lot of views and opinions for me later in life in terms okay. of um, equality. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly things like racism. Um, you know, we have exceptionally open minds on all of that because of that early mm -hmm. upbringing, mm -hmm. and, and um, you know the ability to 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 work with and and get on with different cultures mm. and different people from different backgrounds of all ages and and so on and so it was it, looking back was tremendous and a great a great opportunity that sure most people you know wouldn't have so home base was this small village but uh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, a lot of travel um, from yeah, there. a fair amount of travel right. um, and, and so on and that and again that sort of gave us the travel bug and the right and the um, I suppose the motivation and desire to want to see more than the yeah. small village sure um, but the grassroots yeah 
upbringing, which we hold very fond, um, mm-hmm. was definitely there. Yeah. Okay, and so it sounds though that travelling in Nigeria and so on was uh, before your sort of high schooling years. Yeah, so we came back at again. I can't remember exactly, but I think sort of age of nine or ten, um, and then we uh, we went to the local um, what was called the comprehensive mm-hmm. system in England in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably one of the pivotal moments was me then going at the age of eleven in in UK in those days. Um, there used to be what was called an eleven plus examination, which all children took. Okay. If you got a certain mark, um, you qualified to go to what was called grammar school. Yes. And if you didn't get that mark, you went to the local comprehensive. Right. Um, uh, I remember my uh, my mother actually going to see the headmaster and uh, asking basically what chances Paul got of passing. Okay. Of which the, the answer was a categoric zero, <laughs> nil, no chance. <laughs> and she came back and told me that. Whether that was a good thing to do or not, I don't right. know. But, um, that actually motivated me to go out buy books in the, right. you know, we actually had books in those days yeah um, and to basically practice like crazy and so specifically was, on this exam right. and, actually, and I eventually passed it and, and was the, the feedback that you wouldn't pass because yeah. you had so much of your schooling elsewhere or was it because you're just a naughty boy uh, no I wasn't I was I was probably a good student but right. not, but not um, you know highly academically okay. gifted in right. those days but sure. um, a hard worker okay and that's what stood me uh, for the rest of my life in terms of you put the effort in mm-hmm. you put the work in you'll generally get the reward mm-hmm. and uh, and that was probably the first sort right. of experience I have actually doing that okay so, yeah. and was your brother younger or older than you he's younger so he's actually two years younger right okay and so off you went <clears> to uh, the grammar school yep so went off to 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 the grammar school and, and had a uh, probably an old school English education um, uh, in terms of you know the, the, the basics and teaching what was right and wrong mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth and uh, uh, and things that went with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it seems from reading your CV that sport and fitness was obviously pretty important mm. to you then. Yeah, look, I'm not so sure about the fitness uh, element, but uh, definitely sport. So I'm, I'm, I'm a lover of all sports. Right. Um, it's just something that, 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 that has always been with me. Um, mm-hmm. My real passion uh, is, is definitely in, 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 the, in the area of football or, okay. or, or soccer, to yep. put it in just to make sure that um, uh, the Australians out there sure. understand what that what that is, um, different codes, etc. But so I started playing the game at a very early age, probably mm-hmm. sort of six or seven, uh, and that was really my life, along with obviously going to school and mm-hmm. various things that you do as a kid, uh, all the way through to sort of age 18, 20. Mm-hmm. Um, was fortunate enough to um, uh, be able to play it. Um, semi-professional and professional level okay for a long time right um, for uh, for a few teams but this is going back to the sort of the eras of uh, teams like Derby County and Nottingham Forest who mm-hmm. um, are actually in the, the division one now in, in, in UK if you look at where they are but in those days we're in what was called division one which is now the Premier League and we're very successful and right uh, you know the thing that sport gives you is a lot of things but it gives you um, you know great great teamwork ethics um, it's it's a great leveler so you're mixing with people of all ages nationalities mm-hmm. abilities backgrounds 
um, you know, it's just wonderfully inclusive and you've got a competitive nature to it as well as a social nature and I've still got friends, lifelong friends mm -hmm. that I keep in contact with from sporting days, it's as simple as that. So. Uh, and is that what inspired you to want to go and actually do some formal tertiary qualifications in, in that space? Yeah, so I think like most most children when they get sort of 16, 17, they, they generally are not too sure what they want to do. Right. There are a few that are, but they're probably the fortunate ones or maybe not. I knew that I wanted to be involved in some form of sport, sport management, mm -hmm. etc. Um, I, at that time, was still with a professional club, Derby County, in terms of on what was called schoolboy forms. Okay. You get to the age of 17 when you're leaving school, mm -hmm. and I had a choice of either going on to what was called apprentice forms with them, which would have been full-time playing, Right. or uh, I was fortunate that I had a, the opportunity to go to college or university. Right. It was a tough decision, mm -hmm. um, because you are always drawn to... Uh, you know, possibly making a living out of sport and because it's something that you love, but mm -hmm. clearly the sensible approach was to get the qualifications and try and do mm -hmm. some sport as well. Sure. So for whatever reason I made that latter decision mm -hmm. and uh, went to do a, an honours degree in what was called sports science and leisure management, which today is commonplace mm -hmm. as a programme. Right. Uh, in those days, I, found, I think the sports science degree that I did was the first year Right. That, that had actually been introduced. Wow. So this is some time ago. Sure. So. And so during that time and going to university and so on, was your income from playing uh, football? Yeah. So what I did is I, I played uh, not only for the university, but I also played what was called semi-professionally. Yeah. So below the four leagues without getting too complicated in okay. the professional leagues in England. Right. You had a plethora of non-leagues. Okay of which the top two or three also um, were, were part-time salary situations. Right. So okay. typically we, we trained twice a week, we mm -hmm. played one or two games mm -hmm. a week, mm -hmm. and I combined that with university and that gave me a bit of an income to, to put me through university as right. well as you know keep that keen interest sure. and the things that go with sport, right. fitness and health. And yeah, and still else. living at home during that whole time of your No, no, this was, I was living, uh, so this particular college was in, uh, in in Cheshire. Okay. It was part of Man Manchester Metropolitan University in, in a place called Alsager, which ironically was also a fairly small village with, right. a, with, a, with a large university campus. Mm -hmm. um, and we lived uh, in, in halls of residence, basically, right. for, okay. for the three years, which again was a, you know, it's almost the best three years of your life. You, yeah. You, you know, you first of all, you've got freedom for the first time in your life. Yeah. Uh, you've got to find a balance between you know the social, the uh, the university studying, mm -hmm. the sport, and other things, and you've got to work out that for yourself. And, mm -hmm. and obviously, that can go horribly wrong, and it can go very well. So. Yeah, I've got to say, I didn't handle that transition very well. <laughs> yeah. My first year at yeah. university was spent. Uh, <laughs> Far more in the pub than it was spent in the lecture theatre. Well, but anyway, there's, there's many more who've gone that way, Richard. <laughs> <don't they? laughs> all's, all's well at ends. And generally, well. the smarter ones go that way. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. and so um, from there, you went into um, actually working in uh, the fitness club industry, mm. right? Yeah. Well, there's probably another pivotal moment was that when I came out with with my degree, um, I wasn't sure whether to go into the public sector, which was typically leisure centres in those days. Okay. Anyway or the private sectors, which were a whole heap of private clubs of different, right. you know, whether it was a health and fitness club or, mm -hmm. or a golf club and so on. 
So the first interview that I actually had was literally in a, uh, I suppose, a local leisure centre, and the, the, the manager, the, the general manager, who would have been oh, probably in his early 50s, yep. um, clearly very comfortable, had been there for a long, long time, mm -hmm. and he took me around on the interview and he toured me around the, the facility in his carpet slippers. Right. And I can still remember to this day, he actually had a hole in the left toe. Right. And that still resonates with me. That, And that made my mind up that I did not want to be yeah, in that right. sector. Because okay. clearly, one, it wasn't very professional. And sure. clearly there were some, you know, some issues and so on and so forth. So I decided to go into the private sector, if you like. Right. Uh, and that's pretty much where I stayed for my whole career. Right. Uh, so that was actually a probably a fairly pivotal moment in making that decision for you know for a, a bizarre reason like that yeah and so uh, you, you go and join uh, uh, Ritz fit uh, which is what it uh, something similar to what a fitness first time yeah uh, this is this is again in the very early days of, of I suppose health and fitness mm -hmm. clubs mm -hmm. so it is some time ago so akin to yeah fitness first right. or, or other larger chains um, so I went in there literally as a new, as a new, newly qualified graduate. Yep. Um, and worked in all areas of that club to get a grounding in, in basically facility management and mm -hmm. obviously predominantly in the sort of health and fitness regimes. This was the sort of early days of spas coming along okay, and, yeah. and so on and so forth. So a great grounding, um, you know. Uh, Things like uh, remuneration were almost zero. That right. was the, the days of, of almost slave labour. But uh, you know, a great a great opportunity to learn grassroots mm -hmm. elements. Mm -hmm. um, and then, effectively, a fairly short time into that, probably about eighteen months, um, we had the opportunity to uh, to move to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And so, when places. you say we, when I say we, both myself and my brother went. Right. Okay. Um, uh, my parents actually had had also just moved over there, so okay. they, they they provided. It actually wasn't through them that we had the opportunity, mm -hmm. but because they lived there, obviously, we um, in terms of livability mm -hmm. uh, was an easy one. We went to live with mum and dad, right? Um, but so we packed up everything that we had in UK and uh, you know made the long trip and so on. we had, we knew nothing about Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. We both knew that we wanted to go overseas. That was always, uh, but it was probably going to be the States rather okay. than that, I had a couple of opportunities to, um, mm -hmm. to do that. But Hong Kong it was, it was, uh, as you know, it was a, a British colony mm -hmm. in those days, post 97, so you could go along and work and, and you know, be as a local. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, just a, a life-changing experience for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, Hong Kong's uh, a unique place to say the least. Um, and the reason I went over was I got an opportunity to go and manage a uh, uh, basically a sports company. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in those days they were called Sportathlon. Okay. Founded by two English PE teachers who went over and saw a niche in the market for what was called um, after school uh, coaching programs. Okay. So in those days the PE teachers in Hong Kong uh, didn't have to do any extracurricular tuition. They finished at three o'clock and went home. Right. So these guys came in, saw a market for doing anything from uh, tennis to swimming to gymnastics to taekwondo to, to anything that you can think of and um, basically uh, bought over um, uh, 
predominantly English coaches to mm -hmm. work within the English school system mm -hmm. in Hong Kong and grew that from zero students to uh, something like 3,000 students a week. Um, it was incredible numbers all mm -hmm. over all over Hong Kong. I came in to manage that company. Okay. Uh, to sort of grow them, obviously, to manage all those resources and, and start to move us in slightly different directions. What that resulted in after a couple of years was um, uh, basically uh, that company being purchased by Fitness First. Okay. So this was Fitness First, who were a UK mm -hmm. origin company, mm -hmm. came over to Asia. Uh, health and fitness clubs were um, zero pretty much in Asia in those days. Um, this is going back to the sort of late 80s, 1990 time and Fitness First Asia was created and, and we were the first uh, facility that we basically created that situation and obviously off they went and became what they are now which is a world leader so sure. we were just a tiny part of that but um, uh, you know the experiences we had in Hong Kong were just um, mm. incredible. So what took you out of that business and then going and joining a golf club? One of our clients, so I was the, the effectively the general manager and operations manager for that company for uh, two years. Mm -hmm. um, we just moved them into the spheres that I mentioned. And one of our clients was a company called, or a club rather, called Clearwater Bay. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, if anyone knows Hong Kong, there may be a few people out there who do, um, is a sort of a three-in-one club. So it's a, a legendary site on the top of a cliff top, mm -hmm. uh, very akin to sort of Pebble Beach in, okay. in California as far as the, the outlook mm -hmm. and the environment. Um, and it's a golf club, a, uh, a 300 berth marina, mm -hmm. and a very large country club in, in the sort of American style of, uh, of country clubs. So very mm -hmm. large, full facilities, uh, swimming pools, four restaurants, uh, fitness centers, um, uh, lots of activities, events, uh, uh, bars, etc. function facilities, okay. as well as the golf and the marina. Mm -hmm. um, so I was offered the opportunity to come in and manage the country club mm -hmm. component, um, which moved me into very much facility management rather mm -hmm. than what I'd necessarily been doing before. Again, a great opportunity, uh, one that I was given at a very early age. So that would have been, oh, I would have been 20, 26 around okay. that time. So, uh, you know, one again that came at a, at a, at a respective age, mm -hmm. um, was then promoted to what was called the deputy general manager of the three clubs. Mm -hmm. um, and then for the last eight years of that tenure, because I was there 13 years in total, uh, became the chief executive for, mm -hmm. for the whole club. Um, and um, again, a wonderful experience, a very unique one. Um, the club story is an incredible one in terms of um, its origins are around a group of boating enthusiasts who used to sail around what was called the Sai Kung area, mm -hmm. which is a fairly famous sort of sailing water in, in Hong Kong, saw this piece of land back in the late 70s. They were all avid golfers and decided that they'd like to approach the government and see if they could get some form of crown lease on the land, um, which they eventually managed to do. Mm -hmm. They then essentially cut the top off a mountain to uh, create um, a three and a half K road to the venue. Right. Uh, built the golf course, mm -hmm. um, 
typically ran out of money mm -hmm. doing doing all the infrastructure that was massive just to even get to the site. Um, I joined them in 1990 as they were just coming out of those monetary issues and we spent the next 13 years effectively uh, building and rebuilding what you see there today which is um, uh, a truly world-class club it, it's 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 in that um, it's in that uh, region of, of uh, notoriety and, mm -hmm. and quality and to be involved in all of those elements of not only operating but also physically building and the project work that went on with that whole domain uh, and to to create all of that was um, a truly unique experience that you right. could you couldn't have invented it was just one of those situations yeah and so what then uh, brought you to Australia uh, well family effectively we we uh, my wife is also from a very small village in in, okay. in, in England although in in Yorkshire uh, she came over to Hong Kong after we'd been there about six six months my brother and I yep. and uh, we then got married in 1990 okay. we met at university by the way all so right yeah childhood sweetheart situation uh -huh. Um, and um, we had two boys in, in Hong Kong. Um, they got to the age of, uh, where are we, five and eight. Mm -hmm. And uh, we then start to think about where do we want the kids to be mm -hmm. in terms of uh, you know, grassroots education and just the simple things in life and so on. Um, and, and whereas Hong Kong was phenomenal and had we not had children mm. I have no doubt that we'd either still be there or somewhere mm. else in Asia perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, the reality of Hong Kong is it consumes your time mm -hmm. completely. Why um, so? Uh, well the, the, the culture is very much work, work, work is it? Okay. Um, for sure and that's right. what everybody does. Mm. My profession of course I worked across six days as a standard including weekends and public holidays Yeah, um, because that's what you do. And therefore, the one element that you need with children, if you're going to have children, mm. is time. Mm. And that was always going to be difficult. Sure. That my wife um, was the uh, she was the managing director of human resources for uh, several um, uh, banks in, in Hong Kong over okay. her tenure, but ended up with uh, uh, ING mm -hmm. um, uh, Bank for the last seven years, I think, from memory. She flew all over Asia with that role. Mm including Australia, so she was always on a plane. Um, you know, I was always working and therefore, you know, what happens typically is that, mm. I guess the maid or the helper that you have to have, which is pretty much standard, mm -hmm. um, and you have no option, um, ends up almost bringing up the children. Mm. And, um, and schooling is incredibly expensive, isn't it? Schooling is expensive. Um, uh, you know, w we were fortunate some of that was, was looked after by the companies that we worked right, for, but at yeah. the end of the day, it's still very expensive. Sure. Although, and albeit fantastic, mm. the quality of the education schools mm. are... Uh, and in fact, ironically enough, the kids were actually going to um, basically an Australian model school. Right. So, um, long story short, again, we decided that we'd have a look at you know, what were our options beyond Hong Kong for, mm -hmm. for the kids and, and from a family perspective and a work-life balance which as the years go on is gets more and more important. Uh, I happened to be playing golf with a couple of other uh, club general managers one day and asked the same question to them and they, they were a little bit older than I were and they were sort of um, you know, thinking of similar things and so on and one of them mentioned Australia which right. we, to be honest we really hadn't thought of too much but um, 
again, cutting a long story short, we um, we applied for residency, mm -hmm. got that, mm -hmm. uh, and then over the you know forthcoming years, took trips over here, decided that Brisbane was where we wanted to be, um, and um, about five years later, actually, from making that decision. We actually decided to, to, to take the big one, which right. is to move. Sure. You mentioned a point there. I'm just interested. Before I uh, forget, uh, you were saying that you're working in this environment. You're working six days a week. You're working weekends. You're working public holidays. What I'm interested in, uh, I've often thought about, is you're working in an environment where typically fairly wealthy or successful people are coming yeah. for leisure, and you're there working for six days. There must be uh, a way to manage the sort of psychological, cultural type, yeah. uh, you know, conflict that must come from being at work and serving people who are having a good time mm. all the time. Well, what you know, what you've worked in this yeah. space for a long time. How have you personally sort of got your head around that, and and what do you do in terms of your leadership style mm. uh, to enable people to uh, be able to work in that environment? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. I think the first thing, and it's something that we that we discuss at, at interview stage for 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 anybody that we are recruiting, mm. and particularly those coming into the industry, you have to be passionate about hospitality. Mm -hmm. You have to be. If your vision is that you're just looking for a job, hospitality is not for you. you mm -hmm. You've got to have a natural element to you mental or physical that actually wants to help people in that environment and and, and, and be comfortable in it mm -hmm. and not be too concerned about the hours that you work or the social element of working those hours which precludes you from doing other things mm -hmm. and so on and so forth and whereas i think there can be elements of training in that situation a lot of it is just your natural instinct to want to be in a hospitality environment you've mm -hmm. got to be passionate about it and so in terms of yourself, at what point did you sort of discover this passion? I mean, I know that a lot of young people work in hospitality early in their careers, while they're at uni sure. as a part-time job and so on, and then get on with their proper job. Hmm. But what, at what point did you actually say to yourself, I really love it and I want my career yeah. to be here? Um, pr probably back in university days where, you know, a sort of a secondment to different situations within the course. Mm -hmm. uh, we went off and worked in various types of clubs, health clubs, okay. uh, squash clubs, tennis clubs and whatever. And it was an environment that I loved. But, mm -hmm. uh, but I, it was, and I wanted to learn about all elements of the operation. So I wanted to spend two days with the accountant. Mm -hmm. I wanted to spend, you know, two days with the barman. And it was, so for me, it wasn't... Uh, working in food and beverage, mm. I wanted to know about the whole. Cl I wanted to know about the business, and and I think that then got furthered with the Hong Kong situation. In that, you know, Hong Kong really grounded me in in the whole business element of running a hospitality uh, and or recreation and or club and or hospitality mm -hmm. related mm. Uh, business. Mm -hmm. Because unless you can run it along strong financial grounds it can and does go horribly wrong sure as as you will see with you know many closures over uh, long periods of time whether it be restaurants mm -hmm. or, or other situations people have a passion for it but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a quality business mm -hmm. or a sustainable business mm. so I think that passion 
um, which I got from those early days, coupled with that strong corporate business element mm -hmm. and understanding what is needed to run it along those lines, you know, drove me to where I suppose mm -hmm. I am. It's interesting, today. I interviewed uh, Paul Patico the other day, who was the manager of Powderfinger, and he owns three restaurants now. Yeah. And he was saying that it, for him, it's just a natural extension. Uh, the chef is the musician and they're being the artist and he's bringing the the leadership and the strategy and the you know accountability etc to the operation and mm. uh, I'd never really thought about it that way but I, I suppose uh, you do see a lot of uh, chefs who are very very passionate about their craft with no business sense uh, ending up calling up Gordon Ramsay to come in and swear at them for a while <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I think uh, when you talk about leadership style, my my, my leadership style is very much is probably a coaching style. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of uh, football coaching. Yeah. Um, you know, with all ages and abilities and whatever, and, and really, it's 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 creating that team in the first place. You've got to find balance in the team. You know, there are people who can do this. There are people that can do that. But you've got to pull all that together on a mm -hmm. daily basis. And make sure it works and balanced, and, and and make sure that you define the culture. There needs to be a leader. Sure. Um, and and so I, I I always go back a lot to to the way that I coach mm. and the way that I manage, and it's a very inclusive teamwork style. Mm -hmm. But it must have a leader, because you can't have eleven leaders. True. So mm. interesting. Let's. Uh, talk a bit more around that a little later but uh, let's get back to uh, so you moved to uh, Brisbane and, and went to work mm. at Brookwater and I imagine at Brookwater yes. that must have almost been uh, right at the sort of the inception of that as well was it? Yes it definitely was so I, I, I was fortunate I got an opportunity um, to, to come over and manage uh, what was then uh, a brand new Brookwater mm -hmm. golf club um, which uh, was literally in the middle, middle of Springfield mm -hmm. um, and obviously as you probably know and some of the listeners may know is very much the vision of um, uh, the Springfield Land Development Company. Mm -hmm. So And involved with Greg Norman too, wasn't it? Yeah, so that particular uh, situation was uh, a joint venture between Springfield Land, mm -hmm. um, Medalist, um, Medalist that's right. uh, Developments, which mm -hmm. is basically Macquarie Bank mm -hmm. and Greg Norman himself yeah. and his design company, Great mm -hmm. White Shark. Um, and then the company that I worked for was right in the middle of that, which is interesting, which is a company called Troon Golf, who are the, the world leader in terms of golf club management right. on an international stage. So okay. they've got over 350 clubs that they manage worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, they had just ventured into Australia um, and basically were the uh, management company for those owners. Right. Uh, and, and as the general manager, I was their representative and, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So, yeah, very, very interesting project, very cutting edge mm -hmm. for for that time mm -hmm. and that period. Obviously, um, Brookwater was the, I suppose, the higher end residential element of the Springfield area. Yeah. But the vision of, um, you know, those individuals, the likes of Bob Sharpless, mm -hmm. and Mahos and Thambi, etc., was truly, and it's still truly incredible. Mm -hmm. They've taken what was a, a relatively barren piece of land and developed it into um, essentially what will become another city, free mm -hmm. city with the infrastructure and Absolutely. so Absolutely. And they've um, done very well for themselves on the way through. 
Absolutely, and, and, and even in, and even in those days, they um, you know my interview was was very much them driving me around, right, showing me what was going to be delivered, mm. and it has been. Mm -hmm. So kudos to them. Yeah. Absolutely, and so uh, you worked there for a while. <clears throat> um, what led you out from uh, Brookwater then? Uh, well, very candidly, I, I was only there for a short period of time, which is unusual for me mm -hmm. um, from a career point of view I've generally had long tenures but um, very simply I was uh, headhunted to to go down to Sanctuary Cove yeah uh, and the opportunity um, for a lot of reasons to do that was uh, simply just too good and and, mm. and, and, and too good a fit mm -hmm. for what I'd done in Asia and sure. the scale yeah and for what Sanctuary Cove at that time required mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I went in um, to basically manage the predominantly their leisure assets within mm -hmm. Sanctuary Co. Um, for for the owners uh, at that time, and still are a company called Malfa, mm -hmm. who are a Malaysian origin mm -hmm. company, etc. But purchased Sanctuary Co. from the receivers. Yep. Um, and again, another wonderful, unique um, uh, situation, um, which we. Uh, developed over over a course of four years, uh, developed the facilities. Um, one of the pivotal elements there was the creation of what was called an equity membership mm -hmm. scheme, mm -hmm. which is effectively selling equity membership um, to um, uh, essentially Century Cove residents mm -hmm. and, and others so that they owned a part of their future mm -hmm. because obviously the golf courses there um, are surrounded by residential real estate which they lived in. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very good fit at that time for the owners but also for you know, residents of the Cove. Um, and that, that particular ASIC regulated prospectus that we created over mm. three years and then delivered mm. um, set some records within the Australian industry for that industry. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a great thing to be part of and, um, uh, and again Sanctuary Cove being so unique in terms of its whole myriad of stakeholders from body corporates to residential uh, individuals through to management companies through to hotels to marinas etc was mm. again a uh, you know a terrific experience but one that was just a very good fit with what I'd done before mm -hmm. and then after that you went and did your own thing for a while I did so after four years um, and handing that over essentially to a, a member ownership mm-hmm I decided to, I'd always had an, uh, an urge, I guess, as most people probably do, to, to do something on my own. Mm -hmm. Also with the, the family balance at that time, I wanted to make sure that I saw lots of my kids yep. in terms of their time. They were just starting to play sport and you know, football in particular, so I couldn't miss all that. Right. Um, and therefore, you know, having a bit more of a balance around that, uh, more Monday to Friday mm -hmm. rather than... Weekends, I started my own uh, consulting company, which um, provided a whole range of uh, uh, club-related hospitality services, both in Australia but also across into Asia-Pacific, which obviously we had a, a lot of um, uh, connections, mm -hmm. but also a need very much in that space, mm -hmm. so uh, a fair bit of travelling. So you were consulting to the clubs around their... Uh, general operations and strategies and marketing. Yeah, so from 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 initial planning stages, if, okay. if a club were looking at uh, creating a club, mm -hmm. so from the physical planning element, feasibility studies, etc., yeah. 
then through to the operations, so that might be setting up operating manuals for them, mm -hmm. working with them to recruit mm -hmm. uh, staff, uh, and, and also training, um, particularly in Asia where you know, club management training was, um, was pretty new in those days. So across all of those sort of regimes, um, working with people like Peninsula Hotel Group uh, in some elements because they also have a clubs division. Mm. Uh, a couple of clubs in in, in, in Malaysia, uh, Sanctuary Cove indeed here on, on, on the Gold Coast again mm -hmm. was a client and uh, and also Lynx Hope Island which um, was one of my first clients uh, because they also um, created a, a, an ASIC regulated prospectus on equity membership so we're involved in setting that mm -hmm. up as well so yeah a whole range of things and okay. uh, again very enjoyable nice sure. to be my own boss. Yep I talked to a lot of uh, people uh, in my role uh, in recruiting who uh, uh, as you said, a lot of people think about going out and doing their own thing and uh, what, having done that for two years, what were some of the things that you most enjoyed about running your own consultancy and what were some of the things that you least enjoyed? Yeah, um, I think what I most enjoyed, first of all I became exceptionally efficient because um, I could get most things done quite quickly because mm. I was answering to myself. Sure. Um, there were no approvals required. Um, I didn't have lots of staff around in terms of taking up time, mm -hmm. so therefore became almost overnight very, very efficient. Mm -hmm. uh, that was clearly a positive. Um, being being one's own boss and uh, you know deciding on the direction of the company and so on was was terrific, mm -hmm. um, etc. Negatives, not not too many. I think I think the thing that I found probably a little bit surprising was having been in the hospitality business for a long time. I've always been surrounded by a lot of people, whether it be a management team or, or uh, you know members and guests and whatever. And obviously, when you're working um, on your own for your own, all of a sudden you don't have all of those people around. Yeah. So uh, being able to kick things around on a round table basis and and come mm. to a um, a decision which generally is somewhere in the middle of the table was obviously um, more difficult to do, mm -hmm. and I miss that. Yeah, I miss that sort of inclusive mm -hmm. uh, element, which mm -hmm. is uh, in reality the reason that I went back into um, into the you know the, the actual industry itself, mm -hmm. as far as operations are concerned. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of elements, particularly that strategic project element. Um, were terrific, great mm -hmm. fun, and, and, and you actually contributed. You went into an organisation, you contributed, then you moved on, mm -hmm. um, which was also uh, very satisfying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And but it was really the uh, the loneliness of being uh, largely without a peer. Uh, network that drove you back into the commercial space. Yeah, look, I think so, and also the fact that. You know, whereas on the other side of the coin, uh, it's nice to go into an organisation, help them out, and move on. Mm -hmm. Equally, if you really want to move an organisation forward, mm. you need to be completely immersed in that yeah. element. Yeah, I would and, say and that takes time. Absolutely, I would say the the vast majority of senior executives that I know who have been consulting and want to return back into a corporate. Uh, yeah. It's because they are tired of being all care, no responsibility. Yeah. They they want to actually see the results of you know the work that they've been doing, and uh, and so I you know it's a very common story. Absolutely, mm. and I think um, you know one of the sort of quirky little things that happened at the end of my tenure in Hong Kong was that the you know the, the members and the staff presented me with a, a typical sort of. Uh, 
Chinese calligraphy scroll. Right. And what it said on there um, was basically, you know, Paul Granger has left his footprint right. in this club. Okay. Which was an incredibly um, heartwarming thing to receive. Right. Um, but it was true. I'd been there for a time. Right. And everywhere across that organization were things that we'd created. We'd obviously reinvented them over the years, but, but created them in the first place. Sure. And that's very satisfying. Yeah. Uh, but you can only do that if you've had tenure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can only influence, ultimately, if you've got time. Yep. Uh, because changing things like culture, mm-hmm. which is a crucial element of lead- leadership, requires a lot of hard work, a lot of passion, a lot of commitment, but also the time frame to do it, because it's not a five-minute process. Sure, yep. So, so how did the Polo <clears throat> Club uh, come up for you then? Uh, well, that came out a little bit of the consulting work, so right. they initially... Um, uh, called me in to have a look at the club and you know where the club might be going, where, okay. where it could go, mm-hmm. etc. Um, this is um, where are we? 2010, I think, from from memory. Um, and it was very interesting assignment because the club itself was in a in a, a heritage list of building, an iconic building, uh, great position. Um, and 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 lots of things that could be created, but really, it needed to be uh, looked at as a business also, mm. um, and and perhaps that was what it wasn't previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went in there to really try and, I suppose, turn around that situation, which um, we had some good success in doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, another, again, another unique uh, experience. Some terrific members. Uh, again, an iconic um, club in terms of its setting. Sure. And again, without overusing this word unique, it was truly different. Mm. Uh, boutique being smaller than most clubs, mm-hmm. uh, which was positive and negative. It obviously had limitations with its size, but uh, yeah, another great, uh, and again, a wonderful, um, you know, having worked with uh, you know many, many um, volunteer committee governed facilities over the course of 30 years, um, uh, a tremendous board of directors who were incredibly passionate as well as talented and uh, again just a, a very good experience. Mm. Tough, challenging, sure. yes, all of those things but um, as you can probably tell I'm not necessarily a maintainer, mm-hmm. um, I only believe in moving things forward. Mm. But did, you've um, stayed so. in many roles as you said earlier for, for a long time, I mean five oh, years absolutely. Uh, at the Polo Club. Uh, and then really exiting there, if I remember correctly, because the club ended up being sold. Yes, um, a very simple story without going into too much detail. The the, the, the club members had a very, very um, attractive offer to buy the building. Mm-hmm. Um, there were in reality only uh, a small number of owning members as such. Yep. Um, and those members decided to take up that opportunity. So. Uh, Having um, having built clubs before, not single-handedly, but uh, certainly been involved in building them and, and pre-opening mm-hmm. clubs, and and obviously operating lots of different clubs of different natures. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the first time that we actually had to close one down, mm. uh, which is a, a very interesting exercise, uh, quite emotionally draining for mm. everybody. Sure, um, because you're actually. Um, you know, literally closing everything down rather than building them up and being mm-hmm. um, creative. Um, but I think we did that very professionally. I think we did it um, 
very well in, mm -hmm. in the circumstances. All of the staff were uh, well taken care of. Mm -hmm. The members were very well taken care of, and um, uh, you know, if there is such a thing, a very successful closure that people can walk away with, you know, heads held very high. Mm -hmm. yeah. And now, almost a year at the Brisbane Club. Yeah, look, I'm not sure where that time has gone, to be very honest, but um, I, I joined them literally immediately after the Polo Club closed in, mm -hmm. in August. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a whirlwind, um, but but one again, which is a, a terrific, terrific challenge that, you know, the Brisbane Club is a is a wonderful club. It's been around for a long, long time. Its mm -hmm. membership is second to none. Um, and, and that's really the strength of the of the club. Mm -hmm. We have great support from uh, from the members. Um, you know, our events are very well attended. Um, our function spaces are, are excellently used, um, and um, you know we're able to do a lot on, off the back of a very strong membership. Mm -hmm. And now it's really all about for me taking the club to the next level, mm -hmm. and that level is world class. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think you know we there's a lot of things happening in Brisbane uh, or that will happen in Brisbane over the next four to five years with uh, Queen's Wharf development and things like sure. that which will move hospitality to a different level. Mm. So that's interesting I was going to ask uh, uh, how would you benchmark uh, if you say I want to take a club from where it is to an international yes. level how, how do you actually measure that to know how and if it's achieved? Mm. Well, you do need to try and do that, and obviously, um, you you need to conduct regular surveys mm -hmm. with your membership to make sure that the feedback that you are getting is what you want from mm -hmm. your services. Obviously, you have to measure engagement in terms of usage, utilization, both in restaurants, but also in things like event spaces and function spaces, and so on. Um, and then you have to compare with the best in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, from a Brisbane point of view, um, we have some way to go still in hospitality. If you mm -hmm. compare it to the best in the world, and you mean Brisbane as a city does? Brisbane as a city still yeah, has sure. some way to go. Again, I think you know things. The initiatives such as Queen's Wharf will mm -hmm. change that because mm -hmm. it will move levels to a five-star level. Mm. Those who believe that they're five-star right now, in reality probably aren't. So what's the, where's the gap? The gap, I believe, is in two areas. Mm -hmm. I think facilities. Okay. Uh, I don't think the facilities are broad enough or mm. um, at the same level that you would, well, I know from experience, they're not the same level as North America in the club mm -hmm. industry and or Asia mm -hmm. in terms of the breadth of the facilities and just the quality of fit outs and mm -hmm. that, that kind of world. So there's there is a gap there and the other one is probably in in service levels in terms of consistency the hardest thing in hospitality is to have consistency in mm -hmm. service um, most facilities can deliver one day mm -hmm. but then the next day something goes wrong sure um, and I think that you know if you if you were in the best in Asia that doesn't happen mm -hmm. if you walk into the Peninsula Hotel I can tell you right now what you'll get mm -hmm. and I don't even know who's there Right. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that's unique about a club environment is that unlike running a restaurant where you have different patrons coming in, you know, every yeah. day, and some people may visit occasionally, uh, yes. but uh, in the club it's the same people basically walking in and out, sure. if not every day, certainly every week. Um, 
but but that but that makes it even more of a challenge Absolutely. because you you those people are used to right. a certain benchmark yeah and you need to get better and better uh, and 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 not go the other way right so it means that you know standard operating procedures and mm-hmm. training training and training mm-hmm. are crucial mm. um, and we are not yet as a city in hospitality mm-hmm. i think particularly in the club world uh where we need to be mm-hmm. and, and, and other facilities i think coming coming back to, to things we mentioned before will will actually really help that mm. to come along and so how do you keep your thinking fresh i mean are you going and uh doing study tours to go and look at the best of the best internationally um we should be doing richard mm-hmm. um i'm i'm fortunate probably a little bit that i've seen sure that even yeah though it obviously changes um and, and i do a lot of i do a lot of reading um in terms of you know what trends are what's mm-hmm. happening and and not just in the club world i mean i think we need to be mindful that we we don't become too insular mm-hmm. uh, in other words just see the club world yeah we have to look at hospitality what is happening outside mm-hmm. what are people looking for because mm-hmm. um, if you just continue to do the same old same old that you've been doing for a number of years well yeah. then guess what you get the same result yeah and I, again another challenge would be a lot of your club members just want same old same old they've they've been coming yeah. for 20 years and yeah. they don't want change do they yeah no change is a, a funny old word um but I think, I think we have a, an obligation to also and a responsibility to actually educate. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is that um, you know, if you can show them and deliver what can be done, mm. they will warm to it. And, and you've got to do that. It's not a matter of staying exactly. Yes, you've got to respect the past. You've got to respect the fact that a club is an extension of your home and you want to be comfortable and therefore change is not sure. something you want to see a lot of. But equally, you don't want a stale membership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to continually refresh the mm-hmm. membership. New people coming in; those 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 people are looking for slightly different things. Mm-hmm. So, the hardest challenge in the club industry is meshing those two cultures together mm. and making sure that everybody is still very happy. Mm. Uh, and that's a continual thing. Mm. I imagine uh, because your whole career has been in this space and you've developed a lot of expertise. Uh, and you're wanting to keep yourself challenged and growing, mm. and yet you're doing it within an environment where uh, some of your uh, your desire for growth and uh, modernisation, you need to kind of keep the brakes on a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's uh, true. Do you find that you've got a bit of an internal tug of war at times between I really, really want to do this, but I can't do it because yeah, uh, I don't I want to. Yeah, you, you, you've. Um you know, I've sort of got three watchwords that I, I've tended to, to, to go by, and, and they may be a bit colloquial and a bit casual and whatever, but, you know, patience, thick skin, and a sense of humour. Right. And, and, you know, the three combined, you pretty much have to have. If, mm-hmm. you're, if you're going to be successful in the club industry with, mm. the, with the various governance structures that, mm-hmm. that, that need to be managed mm. and need to be involved and need to be furthered, um, you certainly need those elements. Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously um, are dealing with all walks of life and, and, and you know, hundreds of thousands of different characters and views and opinions mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, those, those sort of three traits tend to, to, to get you through that yep. situation. Yep. But you've also got to keep progressing. Sure. You, you cannot, the easiest thing will be just to 
Put maintain. your slippers on and have a hole in the toe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I've actually never bought a pair of carpet slippers. Oh, really? Because of that little uh, exercise. I, I must admit, I've, I don't think I've ever owned slippers either. <laughs> no. um, and and then, then just to throw in the mix to make it even more exciting for you, mm. you've got a voluntary board that changes its chair every year. Sure. Yeah, that's... that's um, <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, look, you know, to be candid, it's obviously always a challenge right. and any, any domain that, that changes its leadership every year is always going to be sure. a challenge. Um, I think you, 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 it comes down to basically communication mm -hmm. and, and working with people. Mm. And whereas everybody, um, you know, has a different way of approaching things and so on and so forth and a different character and, and different ways of doing things, the common theme is they only only want the best. Mm. They only want the best for the club. Sure. Um, and as long as we, we you know, we, we remember that, it's just you may have to go a different direction mm -hmm. to get the same result, mm. and, uh, and so on. Okay. And so now looking towards the future, um, uh, Brisbane is continuing to evolve and modernise as a city, and that's obviously going to have a, uh, an effect on the Brisbane club itself. Uh, but when you look to your future professionally, you know what, what are the things you're excited about for yourself, say, in the next five to ten years? Oh, I, think, I think that that big element of clubs will become a lot more professionally run. Mm -hmm. That has already happened, for example, in North America some mm -hmm. 20 years ago, where they went from the old club secretary mantle or, or title for their leader, if mm -hmm. you like, through to what was called a chief operating officer concept, and that was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Asia adopted the same element some 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Australian clubs are starting to catch on in some ways, still quite traditional in other ways, um, but that starts the ball rolling in, in the club industry then becoming taken to be much more professional. So. Mm. You know, titles such as chief executive officer are, are very important. They may seem like a title to, to others, but that also sets out the tone off of how a facility is going to be managed, mm -hmm. governed, mm -hmm. uh, etc. And that's leading to, uh, I think, a far more professional breed of managers coming through mm -hmm. um, who are um, trained across all elements of hospitality. You know, typically they may come from a hotel background, for example. Mm -hmm and they take those elements and bring it into a club domain, which is very positive. Mm -hmm. Equally, you've got to remember that clubs are a little bit different and therefore mm -hmm. management style and the things that we just conversed on a few minutes ago mm -hmm. are also important. But overall, what it's doing is it's just making it much more professional. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's, um, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, again, uh, without going backwards, but um, some of those... Uh, leading edge developments that Brisbane is beginning to attract mm. from a Brisbane point of view is going to have a really positive effect on us. Mm. It does mean that some will not survive, mm -hmm. um, but those that do will be much stronger for it. Mm -hmm. And that for me is exciting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, interestingly, a newer club or a, a very new club that started to offer quite a, a different model uh, went into receivership in Brisbane this week. So, uh, uh, yes. it is it is not yes. for the faint-hearted that's for sure no it's not because you um, 
um, you know, you, you you ultimately have to to have a very engaged membership, which mm -hmm. is literally a daily process, mm. and not forgetting that there's so many options around for uh, clients, mm -hmm. uh, members or otherwise, to to uh, to dine, to mm -hmm. eat, um, to hold meetings, um, to to have leisure or recreation. That you've got to have something fairly unique mm -hmm. to be able to compete with that. Absolutely. Um, and so, just to wind uh, this conversation up, because I know you've got things to get on with, um, you know, one of the big uh, motivations for this podcast is for people who are aspiring to becoming a CEO to be able to listen to those who have walked the path before them and yes. and learn from <laughs> their experience and. Uh, uh, so, for people who are listening to this, who perhaps uh, have an aspiration to grow to a CEO uh, level role in general, and also uh, within the club style environment, what what are some of the the critical learnings that you've had along the way that you could share um, uh, that have helped you? Yeah, I think I mean obviously, and everybody has different styles. So I can only speak, you know, from from what I've learned along the way. But I think. Um, you know, certainly the ability to communicate with all levels of whether it's a board, whether it's a volunteer governance structure, or, or whether it's the, the tea person, mm -hmm. um, you, need to, you need to do that and do that very well. Mm -hmm. And you need to learn your style, you know, what works, what doesn't work. Um, again, a little bit akin to coaching. Some people need a little kick up the backside. Some people need a pat on the head. So you've got to work out, you know, who you've got involved in those equations. And, and again, communication is definitely something that we can all work on every single day. Mm. I think listening skills is probably a bit undervalued. I think um, you know a lot of people talk a great game, um, but the truly intelligent people are also great listeners. Mm. They take on board what's being said. Perhaps they can't do something about everything that's said. Obviously, you can't please all the people all the time. But sure. if you listen, generally people will give you a better audience mm -hmm. and you will learn something. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, they're the smart people. So certainly listening skills. Mm. Um, and then I think it's really all about drive and, and being a leader and and accepting that responsibility on a daily basis. Mm. It's not a weekly, it's not a situation you can switch off. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I thrive on responsibility. The more I have, mm. the more I enjoy, you know, within, within reason. Sure. Um, and for me personally, I think the other two things that can't be undervalued is that, you know, the better CEOs that I've seen work with even had as mentors, organization and planning. Mm -hmm. They might do it in different ways and they might do it in a casual way on the mm -hmm. surface, but they're all exceptionally organized and really, really good planners. And if you've got a great plan, generally you're going to have some success. If you go into most things without a notion of a plan, you're going to tend to get a poor result. So. Mm -hmm. For me, uh, personally, organization, planning, communication, mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it matters too much what industry you're in. I think they're the kind of traits that mm. you need um, as a top-level CEO. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a lot about work today, but when uh, you're not at work, how do you like to uh, 
wind down and uh, keep the batteries charged? Is there a club for people who work in clubs? No, they're, 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 well, there probably should be. Um, no, I um, I still am very, very close to the game of football and soccer. I still play myself okay, and right. I'll, I'll continue to play as long as the body holds up, which um, probably is not too much longer. But that gives me a great switch off. Sure. Um, it also helps me to you know, keep fit, which is something I've, I think that's also a little bit undervalued in terms of um, you know, maintaining a, a, a good career. Mm -hmm. you, you need to be healthy, you need mm. to be fit, um, you know, all of those things which um, were driven into me from a very early age. Um, so yeah, most things around football, I'll, I'll go and watch games, um, I'll, I'll play the game, I'll watch games on TV, but, but a lot of it is re revolves around sport. Obviously, mm -hmm. loads of things with the family. Mm -hmm. They're also a great um, you know, switch off and um, you know, with teenage children, um, there's, there's always something happening, sure. as, as I'm sure the listeners out there know. Um, and uh, yeah, I value, value family very highly, so, mm -hmm. so most things are around those equations. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Well, Paul, I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, thanks very much. Have a fantastic afternoon. No, you're very welcome, and thank you for the opportunity, Richard. A much pleasure. Appreciate. Okay. Thanks again for joining us today on the Arate podcast. I trust you enjoyed that conversation with Paul. And I'm looking forward to inviting you to future episodes of the Arate podcast. But in the meantime, have a fantastic day. <music>